Hello, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Beautiful Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Michael Chan. I am looking forward to bringing this conversation to you with Dr. Leopoldo Sanchez. We're going to talk about his recently published book, Sculptor Spirit, uh, Models of Sanctification from Spirit Christology. But a few words just about uh, Dr. Sanchez. Uh, Leo is the Werner R.H. Krauss and Elizabeth Ringer Krauss Professor of Hispanic Ministries, uh, Professor of Systematic Theology, and the Director of the Center for Hispanic Studies at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, where he's been on faculty since 2004. Uh, When I first heard about this book, I was instantly excited. In fact, my good friend and colleague Lois Malcolm encouraged me to get in touch uh, touch with Leo and uh, invite him on the podcast. So just another testimony to why it's important uh, for me to hear from you all about um, people you want to uh, hear me feature here on the podcast. But Sculptor Spirit, as you can tell, is a um, it's a pneumatology. It's a, it's a work of pneumatology. Uh, and it is really, really rich. Uh, one of the reasons I w- have been trying to feature more uh, kind of you know, voices and, and books on pneumatology is because I just know as a, you know, as a lifelong Lutheran that this is a topic that um, often uh, is uncomfortable for Lutherans, or at the very least, I'd say that um, many, many people within the Lutheran tradition and probably outside of it as well have sometimes keep the spirit at arm's length or at least certain elements of pneumatology at arm's length and in the case of leo's book where he's dealing with kind of two topics that that uh, can cause some discomfort for certain circles of protestantism the first is pneumatology the second is sanctification and and so he kind of gives us a uh sort of two difficult topics and he addresses them in a way that i think is really generative and can really help us think about the different ways that the spirit is at work in a person's life. Um, I'll say this in the conversation with Leo, but this is uh, this is a fantastic book for congregations. Um, it would be a fantastic book for uh, leaders within congregations or just Christian leaders in general who are um, have as their responsibilities the kind of the shepherding or the caring of a community. It's the kind of book that can that can uh, kind of open a person's eyes to the different ways that the spirit might be forming a person, different realms or spheres of responsibility, different kind of vocational um, uh, uh, spheres. Th- this is the kind of book that that sort of breaks open the different ways that the spirit is forming us, shaping us, and and leading us out into the world to do the work of the gospel. So Leo has authored quite a few other books and articles that you will definitely want to check out in the notes below, but I just want to draw attention to one that he co-edited called Immigrant Neighbors Among Us, Immigration Across Theological Traditions. This is from 2015, and I lift it up because he co-edited that with Danny Carroll, uh, who wrote The Bible and Borders, and he was on this podcast, uh, I think, in the last year. um, I think it was about a year ago. Uh, another great book to to check out. So anyways, let's turn to the conversation again. Um, if you uh, are aware of people from whom you'd like to hear on this podcast, just let me know. I'll be happy to reach out to them and see if we can uh, have an interview done. Otherwise, I hope all of you are doing well. Blessings to you. And uh, we'll hear a couple words from our sponsors and then turn straight to my conversation with Leo. Thanks. Baker Academics serves the academy and the church by publishing works that further the pursuit of knowledge and understanding within the context of Christian faith. They connect authors and readers across the broader academic community by publishing books that reflect historic Christianity and its contemporary expressions. Baker Academic authors are scholars who are leaders in their fields, 
write ironically, and display a healthy respect for other perspectives and traditions. Baker Academic is a proud sponsor of the Gospel Beautiful podcast. Thank you for listening. Hey there, Gospel Beautiful podcast listeners. This is Brian Schrader, creator of Worship Forward, a resource for progressive, innovative worship leaders. Here you'll find conversations about arranging hymns for your worship band, using song lyrics that promote justice, and how to choose great worship songs to use at your church. Check it out at worshipforward.blog. Leo Sanchez, welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you. Likewise, and uh, congratulations on this book uh, that you've published, I think, in 2019, Sculptor Spirit, Models of Sanctification from Spirit Christology. I I was so excited to learn about this book from our friend and colleague, Lois Malcolm, because I've been trying to feature some more kind of pneumatology-centered books over the last year. Amos Young was on uh, recently... um, uh, 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 and uh, Jack Levison has been on a couple different times to talk about his many works on pneumatology. So when I saw this volume and had a chance to read through it, I was really excited. <laughs> yes, and uh, I was actually uh, quite pleased to write it. In many ways, as you know, with books, you've been working on these things for a while. And uh, it all begins for me in the classroom and also in, you know, presentations I give uh, at uh, pastoral conferences and so on. So the material for this book was really in the making for a long time. And at some point it was uh, time to put it all in a book. And at least to get the, the, the ball rolling, uh, as it were. Um, there are so many other things one could say about the spirit, but there's just so much time. And so this was an attempt to at least provide some ways of thinking about what life in the spirit looks like. Sanctification that comes out of a particular view of pneumatology, uh, or of the Holy Spirit. So it's been fun writing it. Well, and what I appreciate about both topics, both the pneumatology side and the sanctification side, is that both of these are topics that Lutherans like ourselves struggle to talk about, or there's often a high level of a little bit of nervousness, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of I'm not sure what to do about these (laughs) these topics. And so both of them kind of deal with that. Both at the same time, right? <laughs> it could be a, a lot to take in, uh, right. both for Lutherans and even for those outside of Lutheranism looking in. I remember when I was uh, writing on sanctification, for instance, uh, remember coming across a Methodist uh, colleague of mine and I said well you know I'm writing on sanctification and he said something like but you're a Lutheran Uh, you should be (laughs) writing about justification (laughs) what are you doing Uh, stay out of my territory (laughs) yeah I know you know because in the Methodist tradition you think of the holiness uh, also a, a dimension of 
theological reflection, which is quite central. So I could see why he was a, maybe a little bit, uh, in a friendly way, of course, but a little bit suspicious about a Lutheran writing on this. And um, and so I think that was part of it, you know. I, I wanted to see how we could frame the teaching on sanctification in a way that didn't leave behind justification, but actually moved towards a robust way of thinking about the sanctified life. And uh, so that was uh, that was part of my experience, you know, writing this, hear, hearing a bit of those comments. And of course, the Holy Spirit is another one. Because, you know, we're known for being a Christ-centered, um, uh, you know, church family, as it were. And so, you know, we always think of the Spirit in terms of revealing Christ uh, and so on. But, you know, how can we speak positively of the Spirit without leaving Christ behind? But also, again, articulating a robust theology of the spirit so it was kind of a you know a um, a twofold task that i tried to accomplish in one book rather than writing two books about it probably because you know i don't have enough time for that <laughs> yeah who does you have to have, you have to find efficiency somewhere in the system right there you go <laughs> Well, Leo, let's start actually with the title itself, Sculptor Spirit, which is a, a really nice and I think generative image for you. You lift up sort of the, the fact that sculptors, there are additive elements, there are subtractive elements, and, and in many ways, like the subtraction is every bit as important as, you know, as what is added within the sculpture. Talk about how you came to that image and why you think it's a helpful way to talk about the Spirit's work in sanctification. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I can't uh, remember exactly how I stumbled upon that image. I probably was hearing a preacher at some point use it. Um, something about the Spirit sculpting us, shaping us, you know, in a way that the Spirit makes us Christ-like. And I think I started to hang on to that image even before I started to write the book. What I like about the image is that it's very hands-on. You know, when you think of a sculptor, as you, uh, as you put it, you know, they're adding things or taking things out. You think of both hands at work, giving shape to the clay, or you think of both hands... Uh, sculpting uh, some f mass um, and so it was to me almost like uh, Irenaeus type image you know when Irenaeus in the early church talks about uh, the Son and the Holy Spirit as the two hands of God the Creator right forming Adam and the children of Adam into the image of God and then kind of recreating through the incarnate Christ and through the Spirit who is or rests on Him uh, recreating anew the image uh, of Christ in humanity a very cosmic but very involved you know uh, image of the Spirit 
very universal but very personal. Uh, and so I think to me that was important because as a seminary professor, I'm very much interested in the formation of students. And so the sculpting image reminded me of, you know, the spirit's formation of the human person into the image of Christ, as opposed to uh, just saying something like, well, you know, there is Jesus out there somewhere. So, you know, try to be like him, you know, uh, as a, uh, and, you know, as opposed to saying, come Holy Spirit and shape Christ in me, which is, I think, a lot more personal and, you know, up close and personal than you go and be like that Jesus out there somewhere where I have to sort of bridge that chasm or gap. The sculptor spirit image gave me a way of personalizing this more. The spirit comes, descends, shapes in and through us. And so it's very formative, you know, a uh, very formative image. So I, I think that's a little bit of what I was thinking. Oh, I think it's so, yeah, I think it's so generative, Leo. And it, also just the, the, the fact that the spirit and the spirit's fruits and the spirit's formation come as a gift to a person. Like you said, we don't have, we don't bridge that gap, right? It's not like Jesus is over there. So go be like him. There's this element of being formed as well that I think the image you know, provokes in the mind a bit. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, I wanted to highlight also the giftedness of the Spirit. There is, of course, an element of sanctification where we are cooperating with the Spirit, you know, uh, under the Spirit, but with the Spirit as the new creature. Uh, and so there is a place for that. Also in Lutheran thinking, uh, sometimes people don't think that Lutherans have a place for cooperation when it comes to uh, holiness and the theology of sanctification. But having said that, I did want to highlight this element of the giftedness of the Spirit, the generosity of the Spirit. Uh, who walks with us? Uh, you know, who is constantly accompanying us uh, as He accompanied Jesus and was with Him. And the same is true for His disciples uh, today. So, yeah, I do want to return uh, maybe a little bit later to kind of the connections to Luther, because you are very um, explicit about, you know, drawing on Luther and, and, and you see him as a resource in your project. And so I want maybe in a, in a few minutes we can return to that. But I wanted to ask about kind of an autobiographical note that you include just in the intro where you say you describe you say I, I come from an evangelical perspective informed especially by the Lutheran tradition. So it sounds to me like maybe theologically you have some hybridity yourself. I certainly um, come. I would I would call myself more of a charismatic Lutheran. Um, my roots are more within uh, charismatic Christianity and Pentecostalism, um, it, but with kind of my center of orbit certainly within within the Lutheran confessions. And so can you just talk a little bit about your own kind of theological background? Maybe say something about that statement about evangelical and Lutheran and, and what you meant there. Yeah, well, actually what's interesting about that is that in some ways, uh, I actually come more directly from a Catholic background, uh, having been raised in Latin America. Uh, Catholicism was always 
sort of in the air. Uh, even if we were not, you know, a family that was sort of committed to church, that was always part of it, you know. So, uh, and so that was part of my experience. The other part of my experience was that uh, uh, growing up in Panama, I also came into contact with Pentecostals. And uh, there was also a relationship that was formed there and so on. It was only when I came to the United States on a foreign exchange program in high school that I came into contact with Lutherans. I actually stayed with a family of Lutheran farmers in Iowa. (laughs) And uh, they introduced me to the Lutheran church. And what I saw in the Lutheran church was, at least from a sociological perspective at the time, I saw kind of a coming together of two things that had thus far been apart. You know, on the one hand, in the Lutheran church, you saw the connection to, you know, the church's tradition. You know, there were uh, robes and candles, you know, and there was a liturgy. Um, And so we had that. So the church didn't fall from the sky one day. You know, there's a history there. And at the same time, you know, there was this love for the Bible. You know, the Pentecostals were always carrying their Bible around. So there was a love for the Bible. The farmers talked about the sermon after the sermon. What do you think about the sermon? You know, uh, they went to the Bible studies, right? So I saw that kind of uh, love for the scripture in there. So to me, that brought together two worlds that uh, I had not been able to, uh, you know, uh, see as, uh, you know, as connected uh, in my experience. So I think in my work on the Spirit, I've always kind of paid attention to what other theologians are saying, but at the same time asking, you know, how does a gospel center, and I think that's what I mean more by evangelical, more kind of in the broad sense of evangelical, you know, what does it mean uh, to have kind of a gospel center view of the Spirit that enters also into conversation with the tradition. So you'll notice in the book, for instance, that I do bring Luther as a main voice in the Reformation tradition. And part of that is because not many people think that Luther has anything to say about sanctification outside of Lutheranism. And I wanted, in a sense, to show that that's not exactly true. Right. But the book also talks about early church fathers, for instance, right? Which is another way of saying we can drink also from the waters of the East and the West. So that's, I think, an ecumenical move, you know. Um, and then I bring contemporary theologians into the discussion as well, some of whom are evangelical, capital E, or uh, Pentecostal, uh, or Roman Catholic, and so on. You see, so I wanted it yeah. to be a book not just for Lutherans, but for the whole church, although coming from a Lutheran framework. Right. And in, in terms of the early church fathers, who, of course, were important for Luther as well, you really focus on the fourth century and on a number of fourth century authors. Can you just uh, fill out why that particular cluster of authors were attractive to you? Yeah. Well, one is because you must finish the book at some point, right? <laughs> but But also, I think there was a real reason behind this, which is, this is a very seminal, foundational uh, point in church uh, history where we see 
the basis for a theology of the spirit articulated. Not everything is said, but a lot is said. And so you have uh, this group of writers, uh, which include Athanasius of Alexandria. It includes uh, uh, St. Basil uh, the Great. It includes uh, in uh, the West, St. Ambrose of Milan. Uh, it includes also from the East, uh, Didymus the Blind. Uh, you Cyril have also Jerusalem. Cyril of fallen? Jerusalem. He yes, he's in there too. So that's quite a bunch of people there. And they all have important insights into the theology of the Holy Spirit. So I thought, why don't we go back and see what those foundations are? And in a very real sense, they, they do lay an important foundation. Uh, one thing they do is they connect the Spirit to um, the divine identity. You know, so they make clear that the Spirit is of the Father, God of God, as it were, uh, which is, and has implications for sanctification. Um, uh, you know, if God makes holy, God is holy, you know, which is a, a typical argument that church fathers make. Uh, and so, uh, but also they speak of the Spirit's work in relationship to. Um, sanctification and what that looks like and they also connect the spirit's work of sanctification to some extent to christ so uh, the spirit given the shape of christ uh, to the new creature so they don't develop everything about this but i think they lay out some foundations for what might be seen a, a incipient uh, spirit Christology, which is an investigation of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ and the implications of that presence for our thinking about God or salvation or the Christian life sanctification. Yeah, I, thank you actually for defining uh, so clearly spirit Christology because this is an area that you you write in, but that's also very important for the book. And and it, what I appreciate about spirit Christology is the way that it is very much interdisciplinary, right? I mean, some of the the greatest uh, spirit Christological work, you know, was James Dunn, right? The, this a New Testament scholar who really broke a lot of the ground here, at least exegetically, right, in terms of thinking about Jesus' experience. Jack Levison has recently kind of taken up some of that that work as well, and, and you do here kind of from the systematic side. But that sort of raises the, um, the question of Trinitarian theology in the 20th especially 20th century and 21st century, really, I guess you could call it a renaissance. You can correct my language and help me out with that there. But there was something something significant happened within Trinitarian theology, uh, it seems to me, within the 20th century. How do you kind of situate your book in terms of the streams that have emerged in theological thinking out of the 20th and 21st centuries? Yeah, no, that's a that's a very good question. In so, in, in some ways, spirit Christology um, in the contemporary scene, uh, because I think you can argue there are incipient spirit Christologies uh, in various eras of the church's history. Fourth century has some of it. Even Irenaeus before that has some of it. Fifth century, Alexandria, Antioch, 
they have different takes on the spirit in the life of Christ. Uh, then you have other theologians that have been sort of rediscovered uh, from the 16th century and the 17th century and the 18th century. So it's very interesting. They're incipient spirit Christologies. But in terms of the contemporary interest and articulation and development of this field, uh, it has a lot to do, as you put it, with the Trinitarian revival, right? The, so the Renaissance in thinking about the Trinity, which at least in the West really begins with the works of Karl Barth and Karl Rahner on the Catholic side, their works on the Trinity. And uh, also I would put in there Vatican II, right? So uh, Vatican II the, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, there were a lot of theologians who started thinking about, um, you know, how do we enrich a tradition that has been heavily theological, heavily dogmatic how do we enrich it with the fathers from the east for instance right so the, the the ecumenical move what can we learn from the east as opposed to only fathers from the west uh, like augustine or thomas aquinas which would be given uh, the main uh place of uh, honor in the catholic tradition and also the protestants right so with luther and the reformation and all of that what can we learn from Protestant scholars on scripture and you know how they read scriptural narratives and so on, which led to a revival within Catholicism of biblical studies. So patristic and biblical studies and how pneumatology fits into that. Vatican II, I think, had a lot to do with it. And then finally, I would say the rise of the Pentecostal movement globally and charismatic traditions also raise questions about the spirit. And they, in their own right, have had theologians also uh, look at Christology from a pneumatic perspective. So I would say those are the three main uh, areas of, uh, you know, uh, of um, revival or renaissance or uh, phenomena, right, uh, in the recent history of the church that has led to the study of spirit Christology. Yeah, yeah. You you mentioned the uh, sort of the Pentecostal revivals early twentieth century, but then and also nineteenth as well. But then you also have just uh, I, I don't know how best way to put this, but the the charismatic and Pentecostal academics you know, scholars have become more of a kind of force to be reckoned with or more part of the mainline academic theological conversation. So you have, you know, journals now by the Society of Pentecostal Studies and just different publications where there's kind of academic legitimacy being granted. And I, I think all of that is, is really good, but I think it also contributes to, you know, some of, some of these conversations. You know, Leo, I wonder if we could make kind of a, a turn to the pastoral here for a second. And um, I, you and I both teach uh, pastors at seminaries, and so, you know, we're kind of wrestling with what does all of this mean in the context of church life. What do you think are the kind of soul care, Zales Orga, implications for, I guess, uh, an underdeveloped pneumatology? Why does this, in other words, why does any of this matter for pastoral care, for the kind of day-to-day -day life of the pastor or the church leader who is, you know, shepherding their flock? Yeah, no, this is a very good question. So part of the reason why I wrote the book is that I wanted to make the theology of the Trinity practical. 
uh, or you might say pneumatology practical, right? But here's what happens. What happens is that sometimes pneumatology, right, or the work of the spirit is often spoken of in terms of sort of the believer's experiences, right? Or, or, or sometimes rather subjective experiences. You know, I feel the spirit do this or uh, I sense the spirit is doing this in my life. And I thought, you know, we don't want to quench the spirit. But at the same time, I think we can say a little bit more than that. Uh, you know, I think we can ground what we say about the spirit more richly in biblical narrative, for, in, for instance, in what the church fathers have said, in what Luther says, you know. Uh, but I wanted to find a way to, in some ways, put some, uh, you know, uh, make this a meat and potatoes approach, right? So, so that people could discern the Spirit in their lives. So that people would welcome the Spirit in their lives. So that people would pray, come Holy Spirit and shape us in this or that way after the image of Christ. So this, this led to the idea that there are different ways of discerning, of articulating a certain grammar, we might say, of the Spirit. Uh, uh, there are different ways in Scripture in which we see images of the Spirit at work in human lives. And so I wanted to give pastors... And, and you know, and lay people and 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 uh, teachers and so on uh, of the church, kind of a toolbox. You know, here are five different ways, five different types of narratives dealing with five different types of issues. <laughs> um, thinking about what it means to live a Christ-like life in different ways, right? And so these are complementary ways of speaking. And where did I learn this? In other words, that there's a diversity of ways of thinking about sanctification. I learned that by trying out some of this in congregations. You know, hearing out where people were at in terms of their spiritual growth or their spiritual struggle. I'll tell you a story about this. You know, I'm in a congregation. I introduce them to three different ways of thinking about life and the spirit. Um... And so I said, well, here is one way. Uh, the Spirit leads us back to the cross, right? The Spirit renews us with the forgiveness of sins. And this deals with the problem of guilt and so on. And so every day is like a new day. We're refreshed. We're renewed. That's the death and resurrection model of the Christian life. Okay, that's one. Then I say, here's a second one. Christian life is difficult. It's a struggle. It's walking in the desert where we're attacked by the evil one. You know, we're tempted to doubt God's promises. We need an oasis in the middle of this desert. Okay, that's uh, that deals with, you know, the, the problem of spiritual struggle. And then the third one I said, and there are five, right? But I just shared three. And then the third right. one has to do with sacrifice. So the spirit shapes Christ in us, the servant. All right. So I, I share those three ways of thinking about life and the spirit. And then I asked this question, which one of the three do you identify with the most at this point in your life? And what was interesting was 
that different people in the congregation identify more with one of these ways of thinking and speaking than another. And that taught me the same spirit is doing different things in the lives of these people. And they have different, therefore, different things to pray for. You know, different come Holy Spirit prayers. Uh, I remember one lady said, I feel really guilty for this thing I did a long time ago. I don't think God can forgive me. So for me, life in the Spirit is about renewal. The other guy said, I can't get a job. Nobody wants me. I feel that, you know, God is... Uh, you know, God is not fulfilling his promise of preservation. Uh, you know, I'm in the desert. And someone else said, I just want to go out to the neighborhood and help people. How can I help people? Well, he's thinking that Service, they're, in, yes. in, yeah, they're in entirely different places when it comes to sanctification. <laughs> so, yes, the book I thought was uh, an attempt to provide a grammar of the spirit that would help people in the perish in the congregations discern you know the spirit in their lives and therefore lead them to prayer for the spirit uh, and and you know what is needed at that time uh, th this models based approach that you take leo where you have you have five different models um and, and i'll just just name them really quickly so they're in front of us so you have uh, uh the renewal model um uh the dramatic model sacrificial model, hospitality model, and a devotional model. Those, um, I understand why you use the term model and because it's, there's sort of a theoretical element there, but in many ways, these really function almost as kind of nodes around which you have biblical stories, theological traditions, spiritual practices, um, ways of embodying the command to love your neighbor and to love God. And so they're, it's, they're very, very generative. And like you said, you know, imminently practical as well. Um, and they invite people into different ways of praying, as you just said, come Holy Spirit. I mean, I think th these five models are fantastic. And I wonder if I can ask you something of a personal question, which of these five do you most kind of gravitate toward? Oh, that's, you know, I've never been asked that question. So that's, a, that's quite, quite good. I think in terms of my theological training, we were always introduced to the first one, the renewal model. The Christian life is about death and resurrection, right? It's about dying to sin and being raised to new life, killing and making alive, you know. It's very Lutheran. And in fact, when you read... Uh, uh, Lutheran works on sanctification, there's a lot of that uh, in it. So I think that was the most familiar one uh, for me. You even see it in Luther's Catechism and the use of the daily use of baptism, you know, to be drowned, to be raised in your life. Now, that's in terms of my, my training. In terms of, I think, the one I identify with the most, I think probably the hospitality model. Because of my experience as a first-generation immigrant to the United States, you know, and because I also work with first-generation immigrants in theological formation through the Center for Hispanic Studies at Concordia Seminary, which is a program in Spanish that forms primarily first-generation immigrants for ministry. Wow. Uh, and I think because of my own personal experience as a migrant and my work with migrants, I have become, you know, sensitive 
to the struggles of people who feel that they don't belong and are excluded because you know they look different, they talk different, and uh, um, and I think you know that made me go back to the Lutheran tradition, but also the biblical writings and the church fathers, and it led me to ask different kinds of questions, you know, about what does the Christian life, what does the Christ-like life look like when dealing with. Uh, you know, a time in history when we have the largest numbers of display persons uh, in the world ever. Yeah, right. So I think at a visceral, personal level, I, that hospitality model had to had to be there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I really appreciate that, and I wonder if thinking now to our students that we that we teach our uh, you know um, the future or the MDiv students, MA students, and um, whatnot. Do you find that any of these five that they struggle to relate to any of these five? Like, is there one in here that you'd say Lutheran students really have a hard time seeing their own lives in? Well, my experience, and I don't know if this is true for you also, Michael, because you teach uh, as well. But my experience is the devotional model. So the devotional model speaks about the Christian life as a rhythm that the spirit brings you in and it's the rhythm the rhythm of movement and rest the rhythm of labor and prayer and i feel that in a seminary students are or feel and often are overworked and in ministry they're going to find the same thing you know the burdens of work and so uh, labor typically is not the issue the issue is where do you find room for rest Mm-hmm. Rest both in the spiritual sense of time with God, you know, to give thanks and to uh, and to uh, petition and so on, but also literal rest and what I and what I call also um, kind of room for play. And I think that's a real challenge, and uh, we have a huge burnout problem in the church, uh, yeah. both ministers, and I don't know that we always know how to teach that well or embody that well as teachers in our classrooms Hmm. you know how does one embody this kind of life because if students see a workaholic teacher all the time they're going to likely see that as a form of devotion to god yeah Yeah. and that will only be partly right it is devotion to god and that you labor for god but if you're killing yourself doing it that's not a very good way of embodied devotion in the sense of (laughs) prayer and play you know well that yeah and maybe that is where it's helpful to mention that the subtitle is of the devotional model is work play and rest yeah and uh i think i think that's a struggle finding that balance um and uh, one of the things that i was really struck by uh, reading, say, St. Basil, 4th century church father, you know. Uh, he tries out being a monk for a while, and he doesn't like it very much. And so eventually he becomes a bishop, and he's more in the public eye and all of that, you know. But he had a little bit of a stint in monastic life. And he said, I'm terrible at this stuff, but I learned something. I learned the importance of retreat, spiritual retreat and in fact i think it's even a form of death he says <laughs> because you always want to 
be doing stuff. And so you think of sanctification in terms of activity, but we often don't think of sanctification as rest, which would be passivity. And what uh, Basel gets is the passivity of receiving from God. Not to escape the world, but to take a retreat from the anxieties of the world, receive from God, so that then you can be re-energized and re-enter the world. You know, and uh, and then Luther was another eye-opener for me. Because, you know, Luther uh, at one point says rest, by which he means literal rest, is the greatest act of faith. What? What do you mean rest is an act of faith? Wow, that's interesting. You know, yeah. uh, well, because when you rest, you're actually laying all your cares on God. Who, as the spiritual says, scat the whole wide world in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> and so luther there speaks against the idolatry of work yeah you know and so but rest is great greatest act of faith and that was a shocker too not to mention that luther also has that famous or infamous table talk or i can't remember exactly where he brings it up where he says you know i didn't do anything the word of god did everything you know, to bring the gospel to, to our time. Uh, while I was sleeping and drinking Wittenberg beer with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> really? While you were sleeping and drinking beer with your friends, which really is about play, right? Right. Rejoicing in God's gifts in the company of friends. It's less about the drinking in some ways and more about the play with friends. Uh, it just so happens that I guess beer helps when it comes to that, <laughs> at least for Luther. At least for Luther. But what what a what a bold statement, right? That it's okay to sleep and it's okay to play, not just labor in the word, right? And I think that could be a powerful lesson for students in ministry. That is wow, Leo. That is, that hits like a truck. Um, it it really does. That is such a powerful. Uh, kind of way of thinking. I mean, you could imagine a person just reflecting on Luther's theology of rest, right? Like, what does that mean? Theology of play, what would what would that mean to think about Luther through these lenses? I tell students that they need to get themselves a hobby of some sort. <laughs> no, really. I mean, find a way to re just simply rejoice in God's gifts. I I'm always struck by that I think it's from the book of Zechariah, and he's talking about the new Zion, and he says mm -hmm. it would be like boys and girls playing in the streets. Mm -hmm. That's the new creation. That's the new Zion. Wow. Yeah. Right? So how do we live today in light of that future? And uh, one of the things I learned from studies on spirituality in North America is that nowadays people are less interested in what you have to tell them about spirituality and more interested in how you embody it. We can teach a lot by embodying this, you know. So one of my, my big hobby is playing the double bass. I even play in an orchestra. I love it. There is activity involved. You can't exactly swing a symphony. Or, or, or you can't just wing it. You can't wing a symphony. You have to practice. But it doesn't feel like work. Right? It feels like play. And so I think uh, when we embody that, when students learn about that, uh, all of a sudden they say, you know, that's a, that's a way of living a devotional life. And that's what Jesus did in the Spirit, you know. 
he doesn't only work all the time. He goes to the mountain and he prays. He goes to the wedding feast. He has food with the disciples, the table fellowship, you know. So there is time for other things as well. And Jesus embodies that form of life in the Spirit for us in the new creation. Hmm. Wow, that's that's such a such a rich set of reflections, and so you've definitely given me something to something to think about. Well, since we're on kind of the topic of Luther, you uh, you say early on in the book that uh, you think Luther's understanding of sancti- sanctification remains an untapped evangelical resource for teaching sanctification and reflecting on its implications for for spiritual care and, and missional engagement. Talk to me just even in, in broad terms, how do you think Luther helps your project? Or how are you drawing on him? Well, um, I think I, you know, sometimes it's like uh, when you work with doctoral students, right, or with MA students writing dissertations, I tell them, you have to be mad enough at something so that you want to write about it. <laughs> <laughs> Anger can be a great motivator. Right? Anger can be a great motivator. Yeah. Or something is not right. right? You know, you got to have a little bit of a, a chip on your shoulder, maybe. Uh, something really has to matter, you know. And so I think for me, it was this formal or informal critique that Luther or Lutherans really have nothing to say about sanctification. <laughs> You know, there is a story going around that uh, uh, Howard was, uh, the great Ephesus, uh, was uh, listening to a Lutheran give a presentation, and uh, he said something on sanctification, and he turned around to the person sitting next to him, and Howard was a Lutherans don't have a theology of sanctification. <laughs> 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 what are you talking about? You know, and. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, Carter Limber, who used to be a, a historian of the Reformation, now retired uh, over at Boston University, wrote an article one, uh, once entitled, uh, The Lutherans Shout Justification But Whisper Sanctification. <laughs> and what he said was, what's really happening is that Lutherans think of sanctification in relationship to justification. So it's not that they don't have a theology of sanctification, but it is integrated somehow. So in some ways, when I brought Luther up into this project, I wanted to prove everybody wrong about this. There's your, that's your chip on the shoulder. That, that's my chip on the shoulder. <laughs> but I think I not only, but the main motivation really was, was to help Lutherans rediscover a dimension of Luther, they themselves, in my opinion, were not really familiar with. You know, so it was less about others. It was more about us. We need to tap into uh, Luther a bit more and ask how he portrays the Christian life and how what he does is in continuity, even with the early church. Uh, And also uh, how what uh, Luther proposes is also in some ways in continuity with some of the, uh, the, the research today by others on sanctification, you know. So I, so I wanted to do that. And Luther, I think, uh, was very uh, helpful, I think, to show that there is, I think, a resource that is untapped 
uh, in Luther on sanctification. And I think this is also helpful for other Reformation traditions, right? So I didn't have time to get to Calvin or Swingley and others. Others could do that and probably have done that already. But Luther is sort of silently in the background. So I wanted to bring him out a bit more. Uh, and I think it was uh, helpful for me as a Lutheran to learn more about that. As we saw, for instance, with the devotional model, you know, some, some real treasures there uh, to think through. So this is part of the reason why Luther made it into the project. Oh, and I think he fits there quite comfortably. I mean, part of the problem, I think, especially for seminary students who are there for, you know, to get their degrees to go learn to, to be pastors or different kinds of Christian leaders is that Luther's corpus of works is huge. And and so every Lutheran student that goes through a confessions class or even Reformation class, maybe, I don't know how many they take at your course, but maybe two, three, whatever, whatever it happens to be, you still leave with a kind of canonical Luther. You know, that professor has drawn on certain kinds of texts and said, this is what Luther's all about. And that's fine and necessary. It has to happen that way. There's so much there. But, but Luther's writing is so large. His library works is so big that it's easy to um, just not know <laughs> what Luther might think about or how Luther interacted with a particular topic. I mean, I, I'm right now in the thick of working on a, an article that deals with Luther on secular authority, and I'm focusing on his prefaces to Daniel, to the book of Daniel, because he actually has quite a bit to say there about, um, um, uh, you know, Oberkite, secular authority. Um, but those are texts that generally don't get drawn on. You know, you're talking about, uh, you know, the two kingdoms and whatnot. And, and you know, I've, I've kind of a cluster of four to five different texts that if you're going to talk about Luther on politics, you're going to talk about those five texts. But oftentimes these exegetical texts where he's, even the Song of Songs, right, has tons to say about about uh, secular authority. But who's reading the Song of Songs when they're talking about, you know, generally not going to raise that. But that's a, just a common issue with Luther is that it's hard to f gather together all of his thoughts on a topic in one place. Absolutely. Well, here's an example of this, okay, that I encountered as I was writing the book, the hospitality model. So usually when we think about Abraham, we think of him in terms of justification, you know, because he was justified. Yeah, he was, you know, deemed righteous, uh, you know, uh, by holding on to God's promise that through him many nations will be blessed. Right. And then we look at the New Testament and, and so on. Uh, Abraham, the father of the faith. But we often don't think of Abraham as the father of hospitality which the book of Hebrews points to. And Luther, in his commentary on Genesis, which he writes later in his life, right, his lectures on Genesis, he has a whole discussion of Abraham as the father of hospitality, and he speaks to that as a model for the church. And he even says the church ought to be the house of Abraham in the world, meaning hospitable towards strangers and exiles. And he says this at a time when there are people who are exiled coming into German lands because they're persecuted uh, for the sake of the gospel. I had never heard that in any class on Luther <laughs> at all. That's great. So it took, you know, in some ways an immigrant working with migrants Right, thinking about migration and exile and displacement 
to all of a sudden find this jewel from Luther and how he handles this whole idea of what should be the position of the church and the state, in this case a Christian state, you might say, uh, at the time, uh, or, or as part of Christendom, right? The prince and so on. He appeals to the prince for exiles, uh, you know, and so that to me was, again, rediscovering a dimension of Luther that was silent, but which can speak to the shape of the Christ-like life, which is a life of hospitality. And Christ himself embodies this hospitality of the kingdom as he meets those who are outside of the house of Israel, you know, like the Samaritan leper or the Samaritan woman and so on and so forth. So, uh, but it's interesting, right? And in this way, Luther is in continuity with other reflections on Abraham's hospitality in the early church, like those that come from Chrysostom. We forgot to mention Chrysostom in our fourth century uh, lineup <laughs> of theologians. <laughs> yeah. Well, Leo, um, this has been such a great conversation, and uh, I personally learned so much from the book and plan on, I need to figure out some ways to work this into into um, some of the courses that I'm doing, at least part of it, because I, I do think that these models just provide a helpful way into thinking about how the Spirit is at work in a, in a person's life, or even within a congregation. I could imagine, you know, a pastor taking a book like this and just saying, why don't we just kind of take inventory and try to understand how the Spirit's at work in our various lives, you know, in the lives of this congregation and, and then the members here. It, it could be an invaluable kind of act of spiritual discernment to try and understand you know, just what's going on in the garden, <laughs> you know, what's, what's happening here. So, um, I, I'm grateful for your work, Leo. I wish you uh, all the best in your teaching. And is, is there anything that we didn't cover that you might want to mention before we uh, conclude? Well, I think that we were actually very thorough, uh, Michael. I think I just want to emphasize once again, uh, that the the book, you know, is, is both an invitation, I think, for the church to discern her own life and the spirit. But I also like uh, this idea of embodiment, right? So what does it mean to embody this life in your neighborhood? So there's a witness, I think, dimension to this as well. You know, uh, how do we relate to people who in their own way are going through a life of struggle? or who are going through a life of burnout, or neighbors who are dealing with guilt, or neighbors who uh, feel excluded, right? So in other words, how do these models help us not only discern internally as the body of Christ, what life in the Spirit is, but also the forms of life that will be fruitful to embody uh, and the stories that might be fruitful to tell to invite others you know, into the Spirit's work of formation in their lives. So I think there's a real possibility here also for witnessing uh, through a life of sanctification that invites people into these stories that might bring them refreshment to their own lives. Very good. Uh, Leo Sanchez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Michael. appreciate it. Blessings. Thank you for listening to the Gospel Beautiful Podcast. I really hope that you benefited from the conversation. If you did, make sure to leave a five-star review. 
Also make sure that you're subscribed so that you can receive updates whenever new episodes drop. Thank you very much.